F.R. Barry was just 25 and a recently ordained Fellow of Oriel when he joined up as an army chaplain in 1915. Sent to Egypt, he quickly found himself in demand, describing his role as postman, architect, drayman, philosopher and society entertainer, amanuensis for the illiterate, banker, coffee stallkeeper, lecturer, matrimonial agent, counsel for the defence and parson. The following year, he was sent to France just in time for the Battle of the Somme, where he found himself sitting up all night with a soldier who was due to be shot at dawn for cowardice. Half of his brigade was killed in an assault on Mouquet Farm, and Barry was awarded the Distinguished Service Order and mentioned in dispatches. His citation related that he tended and dressed the wounded under very heavy fire with the greatest courage and determination. He set a splendid example throughout the operation. Barry's own description of what happened was more modest. I had never seen a dead man before, much less bloody bits and pieces of men. And as near as nothing, I turned and ran, he said. The following year, um, in 1917, Barry was one of 17 army chaplains who contributed to a book called The Church in the Furnace. And here, Barry was very critical of the Church of England, saying that it specialised in irrelevances and she will never grasp the, the age with those. The traditional idea of God, he said, was lamentably inadequate in the context of war. He noted that Orthodox Christianity had very little hold on his uh, men, um, but he did discern uh, in them what he called a very large amount of true religion. He noted that men combined different sort of Orthodox and heterodox beliefs, so a, a belief in the power of prayer, but also uh, a strong belief in kind of blind fate. He also noticed how much troops were interested in discussing ethical and religious questions. The amount of discussion which goes on in tents and billets and dugouts on these matters would surprise the initiated, uninitiated, he said. At the end of the war, Barry decided to do something to make the Church of England more relevant to uh, the kind of men he'd worked with, and he set up in a disused um, uh, uh, machine gun camp in Le Touquet, first of all, and then in Britain in a disused prison in Nutsford. He set up a theological college to train ordinary servicemen, non-graduates, for the priesthood, which was quite successful for, for a time. And he went on to a sort of uh, public career as a, as a um, well, he was vicar of the University Church in Oxford and then a bishop, and he published a lot of kind of Christian apologetic, but what he was trying to do in the 20s and 30s in particular was to um, def d d d proclaim what he called, uh, in the title of his most famous book, The Relevance of Christianity, applying Christianity to everyday moral and social dilemmas. Well, why did I start with Barry? Well, I chose him because uh, looking at his career helps us, it's a way into examining some of the hardy myths about the Great War and religion. In previous lectures, we've heard about the thicket of myths about the war that grew up from the late 1920s onwards. So you've heard people like Gary Sheffield talking about, uh, while trying to challenge, for example, things like the, the myth of the incompetence of uh, the, the military top brass. There were analogous myths about the, um, the incompetence of the ecclesiastical top brass in the First World War, um, and particularly about the established church. Three myths were particularly pervasive. First of all, uh, that senior Anglican clergy had been kind of bellicose recruiting sergeants. Um, secondly, uh, that army chaplains had been cowardly and out of touch with their men. And thirdly, that the war had led, and more generally, that the war had led to a kind of widespread collapse of faith, or crisis of faith. 
There may have been a grain of truth in all three myths, but they each involved sweeping generalizations and ignored countless counterexamples. And they also all took root at a similar sort of time, I suppose, um, uh, from the end of the 1920s onwards, though they were subsequently validated by historians' accounts to some extent as well. So they've been extremely pervasive ideas throughout uh, much of the 20th century. Just as some of the myths about generalship and strategy and popular opinion about the war have been challenged by revisionist historians um, like, for example, Gary Sheffield and, and, and others. So those about religion have been debunked recently in books by, among others, Mike Snape, uh, Adrian Gregory, and uh, from, from Oxford, of course, and um, uh, uh, in, uh, by other people like Stuart Muse and Stuart Bell. In this lecture, I'm going to sort of bring together some of their recent work and also to try and sketch the long-term effect of the First World War on English religion. Although Barry was based uh, for much of the war in the front line, I'm not really going to be talking by and large about kind of trench religion. Uh, my own specialism is more about what happened after the war. And so I'm interested in the sort of broader impact of the war on society as a whole, uh, looking into the interwar period rather than actually the experience of war in, uh, the experience of religion in, in battle. Many of my examples are Anglican because that's the denomination that I mainly work on. Um, but I'll also discuss other denominations and try and look at the way that the war shifted the balance of power between them. Well, the most notoriously jingoistic um, uh, bishop um, who uh, is um, uh, often lambasted for his comments during the First World War is, of course, Arthur Winnington Ingram, the Bishop of London. Winnington Ingram wasn't alone in trying to recruit volunteers for the war effort. Um, but uh, and lo lots of Anglicans, lots of Catholics, lots of free church uh, clergy did the same thing. But what was unusual, of course, was the very bellicose and um, jingoistic language that he used and his enthusiasm for the task. I mean, he was a sort of chaplain to the London Rifle Brigade, and he, he you know, hugely enjoyed hanging out with, uh, uh, with, with soldiers uh, even before the war began. It's worth noting, though, and putting him in context, um, by looking at the way that the comments that he made, particularly at the start of the war, were instantly um, uh, condemned by other clergy. And uh, so, although he's become a kind of representative figure of an Anglican clergyman uh, um, supporting the war effort, in fact, he was always something of a sort of outlier. When Winnington Ingram referred to the war as a holy war in 1915, he was reproved by a huge number of Anglican clergy, including Henry Scott Holland, the famous uh, canon of St. Paul's and Christchurch, and others including um, uh, the young F.R. Barry as well. More often, um, it was senior clergy who were condemned uh, in the press for being too emollient towards the Germans uh, rather than too um, uh, um, uh, jingoistic or um, bellicose towards them. One polemicist de denounced what he called the flabby babby babble of Bosch defending bishops. And it, it was the bishops who were uh, too pro-German, who were tended to, uh, 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 you know, um, receive the ire of the popular press, in, particularly in 1915. An example was Edward Littleton, the headmaster of Eton, Humphrey Littleton's great uncle, I think, uh, who was vilified in the press in 1915 for preaching a sermon in St. Margaret's Westminster, saying that it was wrong to condemn the Germans. And this emollient turn, to, turn towards Germany, of course, was partly a product of the upbringing of clergy. Many of them, uh, many senior churchmen, like academics and politicians of the day, had um, been steeped in German philosophy at universities like Oxford uh, and in literature and music and had travelled in Germany 
as young men. I mean, going to Germany before the First World War was a, a sort of gap year generation of its, uh, gap year destination, as it were, of its, of its day. Um, Barry, F.R. Barry, for example, had studied theology at Marburg in 1913. And Barry suggested in 1915 that it is well when Zeppelins are hovering over our heads to read some great piece of German writing. He didn't want people to forget uh, the majesty of German culture in the middle of the war. The sort of sorrowful, sometimes tormented conviction um, of the rightness of war um, uh, is very present in the, uh, in the writings of these sort of clergy. So on the one hand, they um, were, uh, didn't want to be jingoistic and wanted to express uh, concern for ordinary Germans and to distance German culture from the behavior of, uh, of the German government. Um, but they also, were, they also were convinced that the war was right. For the future Archbishop of Canterbury, Cosmo Lang, spending the summer of 1914 just outside Oxford, the conviction that the war was right was accompanied by a sort of deep unease. I was harried with anxiety as to the rightfulness of the church in any way supporting war, he said, and I well remember the real torture of mind when I tried to think out the problem in September while in retreat in, at Cudston. But I was driven to the conclusion, right or wrong, that the war was righteous and that we were bound in honour to enter it, and that the church could not rightly oppose it. What convinced Lang of the rightfulness of war and caused others to recount their earlier pacifism uh, was principally, I think, the invasion of Belgium. Edward Lee Hicks, the Bishop of Lincoln and chairman of the Church of England Peace League, preached in favour of British neutrality right at the start of the war on Cleethorpe's Beach on the 2nd of August 1914. But within days, he changed his position because of what was happening uh, to Belgium. And uh, he ended up receiving Belgian re um, uh, refugees into the Bishop's Palace in Lincoln, as well as um, uh, uh, recanting his earlier pacifism. As Neville Talbot, Bishop of Winchester, put it, it was a simple issue of national honesty and honour towards a weak and defenceless people. And this conviction that the war had been right um, continued to be you know, widely espoused by um, the majority, though not all, of, uh, of, 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 of church leaders, particularly in the Church of England. The second myth was that Anglic Anglican chaplains were cowards who skulked behind the lines. As Michael Snape has pointed out, this idea took root in some of the popular novels and memoirs which emerged a decade or so after the war and which were bitterly critical of it, as well as in Robert Graves' frequently unreliable memoir, Goodbye to All That, which came out in 1929. Graves claimed that for the regimental chaplains as a whole, we had no respect, claiming that they gladly exploited the rule that they couldn't get directly involved in fighting because they were cowards, uh, and also that they were disproportionately represented in the army's VD hospitals as patients. Um, in fact, although regulations had initially impeded padres from having access to the front line, many of them found ways around these restrictions, which were later relaxed. And by the end of uh, the war, 112 chaplains had been killed, and three chaplains had been awarded the Victoria Cross. Barry had repeatedly been considered for the VC, uh, but ended up being awarded the, uh, the DSO because they felt they'd already given out too many uh, um, medals to... Um, um, uh, too many VCs to chaplains. I don't know whether that's true or not. So there's a little truth in this kind of caricature of the cowardly padre, but it took off from the late 1920s because it fitted into a wider re-evaluation and repudiation of the war. 
The third myth, though, is, is a bit more diffuse. I suppose it's the idea that war led to a collapse of religious certainties for individuals and a crisis of confidence for the Christian churches. This is sometimes rather sort of blithely asserted by historians as true because it sort of must have been true that the First World War created a kind of crisis of faith. So, for example, Stephen Koss said that the war dealt a shattering blow to organised religion. The churches never recovered from the ordeal. But if we look at the evidence of popular piety in, in and after the war, there doesn't actually seem to be much evidence of a kind of crisis of uh, confidence of this sort. It's certainly true the war didn't lead to the religious revival that many church leaders had hoped for at its beginning. The, um, as Barry put it uh, in uh, 1917, the alleged religious revival is something nobody has ever seen. The Church of England's attempt at creating a religious revival, the 1916 National Mission of Repentance and Hope, was a hopelessly mistimed failure. But although Barry, in his accounts of um, what you know, soldiers uh, said about religion in the trenches, uh, although he um, encountered and, and, and recounted ignorance of the basics of Christianity, this wasn't, of course, anything new. I mean, this was exactly what uh, Victorian and Edwardian Parsons had been recounting uh, in accounts of religion at home among the working classes in, uh, you know, in, uh, you know for, well, since way, way back into, into the 18th century. This was a very familiar narrative. And so they were essentially reading uh, the experience of um, uh, troops into, um, uh, in, in the trenches uh, in the light of a much more established narrative of religious ignorance uh, and a sort of, also a sort of diffusive Christianity which was heterodox. So what Barry's picking up on there is something that's already um, apparent in peacetime accounts. As Barry put it, the war has not produced new problems, it has only heavily underlined the old ones. It's true that some sectors of society may have turned against religion at the end of the war. I mean, George Orwell, for example, recounting his, his, his you know, as a schoolboy, a public schoolboy, he said that um, his generation after 1918 derided the OTC, the Christian religion, and perhaps even compulsory games in the royal family. So he saw this as part of a wider sort of iconoclastic moment. But as Orwell pointed out, this was a very short-lived uh, phenomenon, and it was restricted to a particular group in society. So it's hard to generalise about the effect on war. I mean, it's certainly true, uh, the effect of war on religious belief. The war certainly challenged or destroyed some people's religious belief, but that was by no means true for most. So historians still argue incessantly about the causes and timing of religious decline in the 20th century, but the one thing they all more or less agree on is that the First World War was not actually a, a factor in it. Uh, it, has, it appears to have had almost no impact on uh, beyond just a very short-term blip in terms of um, uh, church attendance or other um, indices of religious observance. A sort of variant of the myth that the war causes a kind of crisis of faith is uh, the argument that the, the Christian churches were incapable of offering any kind of plausible comfort to the bereaved. And this argument was advanced by David Cameron, and, uh, sorry, David, Freudian slip, David Canadine, in a, uh, an article in uh, 1981, uh, in which he argued that to neither the soldier at the front nor the believed, bereaved at home, baffled and numbed by the cataclysmic events in which they were caught up, could the church offer plausible explanation or abiding comfort. Canadine claimed that people instead turned to the newly uh, minted remembrance rituals and to spiritualism. There's probably some truth that there was a renewed interest in spiritualism at the end of the war and during the war, but 
um, spiritualism was hardly a new phenomenon. It had been hugely popular before the war. And um, some of the figures who Canadine adduces as being particularly important proponents of spiritualism during the war, um, like Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, the physicist Sir Oliver Lodge, who um, you know, wrote a famous account of how he communicated with his dead son who'd been killed in, in France, Raymond. Um, those figures had already been prominent in the movement before the First World War. Uh, or, well, um, Conan Doyle had been sort of loosely involved with spiritualism. Lodge had been very prominently involved in the British Society for Psychical Research. So in a sense, this may have been a, um, an acceleration of an existing trend, but it wasn't a wholly new phenomenon. The difficulty with Canadine's argument about remembrance rituals is simply that many of the new rem re remembrance rituals took, themselves took a Christian form. And this was true almost from right from day one of the peace. On the day the armistice was signed, crowds gathered at St. Paul's Cathedral demanding a service, even though the chapter weren't planning to lay one on. When we look at the development of national war memorials in the years after that, um, we see a funny sort of mixed economy, I suppose, between sacred and secular remembrance. Although Edwin Lutyens's National war, war Memorial was deliberately plain and secular, for example, the word he used to describe it, the cenotaph, uh, the word means empty tomb, uh, of course, did uh, pick up on Christian uh, um, iconography and on the, on the story of the, of the resurrection. The annual acts of remembrance held beside it included Christian prayers from 1920, though interestingly Lloyd George and Curzon had originally intended it to be a secular um, ceremony. The reburial of the unknown soldier at the West End of Westminster Abbey in 1920 was the idea of an Anglican army chaplain, David Railton, and the tomb, along with British uh, war cemeteries abroad, soon became a site of pilgrimage. And in designing um, war cemeteries, there was division between different architects uh, about how far, how far the, the, there should be a cross at the centre of, uh, of war cemeteries. So um, Lutyens took a, a humanist line on this and didn't want crosses, whereas another architect, uh, Herbert Baker, insisted on having crosses prominently uh, um, you know, as a sort of centrepiece for, for, for cemeteries. Again, if, we, if you look around Oxford, you can see this kind of mixed economy of remembrance. Uh, you note that some colleges have their war memorials inside the chapel or very close to the chapel, and others uh, are, um, are away from it and, and, and don't carry Christian symbols. So there's a, the, you, know, you can even trace that variance locally around here. And that's also true of the way that different towns and villages, uh, where they put their war memorials in different parts of the country. What I think is right, though, is that uh, and here, you know, here Canadine is, is onto something, is that the death toll in the war does provide challenges to um, theology, but also particularly to the liturgy of the traditional denominations. In the field, uh, many traditional forms of service and so on were abandoned and new uh, innovations came in. Eric Milner-White, uh, one of the army chaplains who later sat up, you know, uh, as dean of um, King's College Cambridge, uh, after the war, he, uh, he, he, he starts the service of nine lessons and carols at Christmas. But Milner White charted what he called an immense, spontaneous, amicable anarchy in religion in the field in France. That, that all sorts of different things were being um, experimented with. The old kind of matins and evensong rituals were, were being uh, abandoned in favour of more improvised forms of service. But this was also true to some extent at home. A particular change, a particularly important change, of course, was the popularity of prayers for the dead, caused, of course, by the loss of loved ones. They were widely used in churches and, and cathedrals from the start of the war, 
and the Church of England was forced to re respond to the popular demand for them by sanctioning them in 1917, though in some, uh, um, you know, some evangelical clergy were very opposed to this, obviously, on, on theological grounds. New doctrines also sprang up, particularly the idea that uh, the sacrifice of ordinary soldiers was in itself redemptive, um, a belief symbolized in a popular print produced at the start of the war, the supreme sacrifice showing Christ with a dead soldier in his arms. And this belief in particular, what Adrian Gregory calls patripassionism, um, was problematic, uh, obviously because in many ways it's a, it's a sort of heretical doctrine, in, 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 strictly speaking, in, in Christian theology. A less theologically contentious popular innovation was the revival of the old, the old uh, um, uh, celebration of Mothering Sunday on the fourth Sunday of Lent. This revival had initially been championed before the war by Constance Penswick Smith, uh, um, uh, an Anglican woman who was alarmed by American attempts to introduce a more secular Mother's Day into Britain. But it really catches on because of the war. It was widely championed by army chaplains, and was popular with servicemen whom the war had separated from their mothers or their children's mothers. So that's a, a, a small example of a, a ceremony that we all uh, observe today, but that is partly a consequence of, uh, of sort of popular religious um, uh, uh, impulses during the First World War. <coughs> Penswick Smith's campaign was just one example of how the war enabled women, of course, to assume more prominence in religious affairs. The absence of men meant that church going at home became more feminized than ever, and women took more of a leadership role in some congregations. Christian women played prominent public roles in the war in different ways. Helen Hansen, an Anglican doctor who'd been imprisoned in 1911 for a suffragette protest in Parliament Square, was later decorated by the government for her work with the St John's Ambulance and the Royal Army Medical Corps as a doctor. Her fellow member of the, Royal, of the Church League for Women's Suffrage, Maud Royden, became secretary of the pacifist group, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. But Royden's wartime career also demonstrates the unease of clerical hierarchies with women's public role. Archbishop Davidson put Royden on the council of his national mission of repentance of hope in, uh, and hope in 1916, hoping that laywomen like her would preach uh, as part of this sort of missionary effort. But after complaints from clergy, he backed down and he left it to individual bishops to decide whether or not women could speak in churches, and some of them said that they could only speak in churches if no other uh, forum was available. Royden's response was to vote with her feet, and she accepted a post as a congregation, in a congregationalist church as a preacher in the city temple in London in 1917. Davidson's uncertainty, torn between needing female help in wartime and trying to prevent the collapse of male hierarchies, um, uh, uh, from ensuing after it, was similar to that of the government, trade unions and employers in wartime. But by first raising and then dashing female hopes, they ended up stiffening feminist resolve. After the franchise was extended to women in 1918, Royden, Hansen and others turned the Church League for Women's Suffrage into the League of the Church Militant and began to campaign for Anglican women's ordination. Though of course it was to be another three quarters of a century before that actually happened but we can see the, the beginnings of the modern women's ordination movement coming out of the experience of the First World War. As well as complicating the balance of power between religious hierarchies and their members, the war also com complicated the relations of religious groups with each other and with the state. It made virtually all religious groups very keen to assert their loyalty and their Britishness. The Jewish Chronicle declared in uh, August 1914 
as England has been all she could be to Jews, Jews will be all they, could be to, all they can be to England. Catholics were particularly keen to prove their patriotism by supporting war, and when um, Pope Benedict XV issued his peace note in 1917, Cardinal Bourne was quick to dissociate uh, English Catholics from it, emphasising, we do not want a peace which will be no more than a truce or armistice between two wars. We English Catholics are fully behind our war leaders. Although, of course, nonconformist churches were much more divided on the rightness of war, um, some of the most prominent free church leaders like J.H. Shakespeare, the Secretary of the Baptist Union, and Robertson Nicholson, Nickel, the editor of the British Weekly, the main nonconformist paper, um, supported it publicly. And so, um, you know, there was also, you know, prominent free church support uh, for the war. The common patriotism of different denominations was symbolised by the holding of six national days of prayer supported by the king, which included the Catholic, Anglican and free churches uh, together. Uh, which is an important moment that Catholics were being included in this um, national, formal national uh, um, uh, ceremony and, and, and day of prayer. This shared patriotic endeavour had two important implications. First, it helped to accelerate a process that had begun before the war, whereby Catholics were coming in from the cold and becoming more integrated into British national life. Because Britain was partly fighting the war in defence of a Catholic country, Belgium, it was impossible to present the struggle in traditional terms of the Protestant British fighting their Catholic neighbours. And so what you get in the First World War is a more generalised defence of, um, a, a more generalised argument that Britain is fighting in, in, in favour of more generalised uh, undenominational Christianity or, or Christian European values. In sharp distinction for the, um, to their Anglican comrades, Catholic padres were often celebrated in popular post-war accounts for their bravery and ability to muck in with their men. And this was a symbol of the wider acknowledgement of Catholic contributions to the war effort. An Irish Jesuit chaplain called William Doyle um, became the subject of a posthumous cult, which was uh, handy for the Catholic Church at a time when the Easter Rising and the Anglo-Irish War meant that the Catholic Church in England was particularly keen to affirm its patriotism and its loyalty to the British state. The experience of war then increased Catholic confidence and gave Catholics a sense of their kind of centrality in the, in, in the nation. And that was further bolstered by the conversions of literary and artistic figures, uh, including Ronald, Ronald Knox, for example, um, and um, the war veteran and poet David Jones in the years immediately after the war. Secondly, the war led to a brief flurry of ecumenical activity between the different denominations. As well as national days of prayer, Anglicans and nonconformists had collaborated at local level throughout the war, sharing services both in the army and in, and in local communities at home. At the end of the war, there were negotiations between free church leaders and the Church of England about reunion, about, you know, about, about merging the denominations. And from 1921 to 1926, there were semi-official conversations held in Belgium between senior Anglicans and Cardinal Mercier, the leader of the Belgian Catholics, whose resistance to Germany had made him a hero uh, in Britain during the war. And it's significant that these negotiations were happening in Belgium because of the significance of, you know, the symbolism of Belgium as a, uh, a brave Catholic nation. Not, neither of these discussions came to anything. Anglicans remained bitterly divided about who they wanted to reunite with, Rome or the nonconformists. And the parliamentary showdown over the revision of the prayer book in 1927 to 1928 
showed that anti-Catholicism was not dead as a political force. But the wartime rapprochement between the denominations, I think, did at least help, or begin to help, to diffuse some of the old sectarian conflicts, pointing away towards later ecumenical initiatives, many of which only came to fruition after the Second World War. The war had re revealed the failure of the churches, and the established church in particular, uh, to reach the working classes. Barry noted in his essay on the church in the furnace that his men had felt that the church was the private preserve of one social class. After the war, a number of Anglicans and other um, church people began to um, found initiatives to try and address this kind of social divide. A number of former chaplains, including G.A. Stuart Kennedy, uh, Studdett Kennedy, Woodbine Williams, he was uh, popularly known, devoted themselves to social reform via bodies like the Industrial Christian Fellowship. And the Industrial Christian Fellowship also attempted, rather ill-fatedly, to intervene in the 1926 general strike um, and, and to promote industrial conciliation. There were also church-led inquiries on social and industrial issues in the interwar period, beginning with Christianity and Industrial Problems in 1918, which was drafted by another veteran of the Western Front, the economic historian R.H. Tawney. As early as 1924, Tawney's school friend and fellow Christian socialist, Bishop William Temple, began to use the phrase welfare state. He was the first person to do that in English, and although it's usually stated that he first uses this in 1941, in fact, he uses it in, in 1924. The war, he argued in um, uh, a book called Christianity in the State, he was so he was talking about the First World War when he, when he uses this phrase. He argued that the war had been a battle between two ideas of the state, the German power state and the new welfare state. And um, uh, so coining this idea of a welfare state was deliberately being um, distinguished from what he saw as the power state that had been uh, led to, the, to, to disaster uh, during the war. Now this sort of Christian social concern, of course, wasn't new. Temple and Tawney and others had all been active Christian socialists in the Edwardian period. Um, but what was new was... Um, uh, the sort of urgency behind social concern. So the war gave it a greater sort of sense of urgency. It also meant that it was more possible to um, persuade uh, uh, more senior clergy, the archbishops and so on, and to some extent um, governments of the urgency of, of, of social reform. And in particular, I suppose, the failure of, of the government to uh, implement the promised social reforms at the end of the war actually further increased the sort of sense of, um, of urgency and, uh, in, in the early 1920s. So although we, we rightly think of the welfare state as a product of the Second World War, the concept actually originated really in the aftermath of the First World War. The actual use of the word welfare state originates back then in 1924. The aftermath of the war didn't dent that belief I've referred to earlier that it had been right. British victory, after all, to some extent validated uh, a pre-existing belief in divine providence. I mean, the best argument, perhaps, that um, uh, the war had been right, or, or a, go a good argument that the war had been right and righteous, was its outcome. That, that validated the existing account. There were a few dissentients. Studdett Kennedy, for example, condemned the war in a public meeting on Armistice Night in 1921. But he was slapped down at that meeting by the vicar of St. Martin in the Fields, Dick Shepherd who, as the newspaper put it, expressed the hope that no mother who had lost a son or wife or her husband would go home with the impression, as he feared they might, that those lives had been given in vain. As Shepard was pointing out here, it wasn't palatable to the recently be bereaved 
um, for clergy or for anyone else to start suggesting that the war had been futile. I mean, that would have been psychologically almost an impossible thing to argue in the immediate aftermath of the war. And church leaders were at one with writers and politicians in the immediate aftermath of war in insisting that the sacrifice had been worthwhile, partly because this was a way of offering solace to the bereaved, um, but also because they themselves genuinely believed this. But this began to change, of course, in the late 1920s. Um, Dick Shepard converted to, pa uh, to pacifism in 1927 and went on to form the Peace Pledge Union in 1935. Interestingly, Shepard seems to have embellished his own uh, credentials from the First World War, um, claiming to have been an army chaplain for several years, when in fact he'd spent just a few weeks in an Australian army hospital in 1914. And he wasn't the only uh, pacifist leader to make up stories about having been an army chaplain. It's quite interesting that being an army chaplain was, was an, import, uh, an important thing to sort of claim that you'd done, whether you were uh, seeking to defend the First World War or, 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 or whether you were taking a more pacifist position after the war. F.R. Barry said that most of his fellow padres had become pacifists um, a decade or so after the war, and he himself was a pacifist for much of the 1930s until the Munich Agreement changed his mind. Uh, Paul Barry ended up suffering in the Second World War as well as the First World War because he lost his, his home and all his possessions in the London Blitz in 1941. And he, um, he was, he's credited with sort of saving Westminster Abbey by ringing up Winston Churchill and telling him to send uh, a fire engine or more fire engines uh, to, to protect the Abbey uh, in, in that bombing raid. The second wave of anti-Great War feeling, of course, affected British society in the 1960s with things like Alan Clark's The Donkeys and Joan Littlewood's Oh, What a Lovely War, uh, which included a parody of an Anglican church parade. As, the 1930s, as in the 1930s, objections to the prospect of another world war uh, were leading to criticism of the First World War. I mean, the two were conflated. It was partly anxiety about the possibility of, 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 a, of a nuclear war that was leading to a re-evaluation of the First World War. Conscious of this, the Church of England decided to update its Remembrance Day services in 1967, and it canvassed opinion among uh, young people about remembrance rituals. But this, was a, uh, this didn't really go anywhere, this attempt to update Remembrance uh, Sunday services, partly probably because of opposition from Buckingham Palace and from the Home Office. Uh, so very few changes ended up being made to the Remembrance service, bar the dropping of a couple of rather nationalistic hymns. Christian Remembrance rituals given added resonance by the inclusion of the Second World War dead, seem to have remained very durable after uh, the Second World War. It's also interesting, though, that old arguments about the rightness of the Great War were still being invoked in Cold War debates about nuclear weapons in the early 1960s. Archbishop Michael Ramsey, who supported Britain's possession of a nuclear deterrent, advised his opponents in Christian CND to read a book called The Christian Ethics of War, which a Congregationist uh, theologian called P.T. Forsyth had published in 1917 as a defence of British involvement in the Great War. So it's quite interesting that in the nuclear debates of the 60s, um, arguments about, the, about, whether, about just war theory and so on, uh, old arguments from the First World War were picked up on again, partly perhaps because in some ways the Second World War didn't provide a very good uh, precedent for arguing about, about just war. Uh, because it was a much less debatable point than either the First World War or, or, or the possibility of a, of a nuclear war. F.R. Barry, the, the man I started with, retired as bishop in 1963, the year of Oh, What a Lovely War. 
As a young army chaplain, he complained that the church was occupied with trivialities, as he put it. But by the end of his career, he was himself, as his biographer noted, increasingly addicted to grumbling about domestic irritations of trivial significance, which he was apt to treat as major disasters. The radical young padre seems to have turned into a bit of an old fusspot. But something similar, I suppose, happened to the churches uh, as a whole in the decades after the war. Good intentions about um, putting aside trivial doctrinal differences or including women and the working classes in their mission soon gave way to interminable old squabbles about things like the funding of church schools and prayer book revision. In religion as in politics, the return to the trivial, the resumption of pre-war hostilities, was perhaps a necessary part of the process of recovering from the Great War. Normal service had resumed. But that didn't mean that nothing had changed. As I've tried to show today, the war had subverted hierarchies and fostered new forms of religious experimentation and expression. These efflorescences had often been all too brief, but they offered a glimpse of future possibilities, some of which were to come to pass many years later. It's this, um, rather than catastrophic collapse, I think, which is the real story of English religion and the First World War. Thank you.